Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. Dr. Tracy Dunn, welcome, welcome, welcome here tonight. Ew. Thank you for having me. Awesome. You know, I'm so excited for you to be here because often we have speakers who they show up, but they don't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. But not you. You've been <laughs> a loyal Southern Soul follower for such a while. And it's like so beautiful, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes yeah. speakers come in, you kind of have to explain it to them. They're like, hey, you know, Katie's going to be doing jokes and she got her own sense of humor. And then we got this trivia, but, you know, only Katie knows the answer. And other people, you know, they just stare at me, right? Yeah. However, you, Dr. Tracy Dunn, you've seen this before. You know yeah. how we roll. Yes, yes, yes. This is a fun group. Awesome. <laughs> well, 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 thank you for being here because, you know, when I thought about this topic, you know, I was chatting with Dr. Um, Daryl Gines, who's going to be on later, and we were mm-hmm. just really talking about entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had talked with you about your career and everything. And I'm like, you know what? What better to get the conversation started than to spotlight you and your career? Because okay. one thing I appreciate about you is that you're extremely humble, extremely mm-hmm. down to earth. But, you know, as, you know, DC Live would say, that's what we call him, Dr. Daryl Green would say, he'd say, Tracy is bad. Tracy is bad. You got to interview Tracy. <laughs> and I seen he just popped in. But I just want to say thank you, right, for supporting us because I know you're busy and I know you got tons of things going on. But we're looking forward tonight to hearing about you, your career, mm-hmm. and what you do at Benedict College School of Business and Entrepreneurship. So, to, to get us started, you know, I just want to kind of just um, give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and tell us some things about you. Okay, absolutely. So uh, first, I'd like to just thank you for inviting me. Um, and thanks mm-hmm. to Dr. Daryl Green for recommending me. And um, thanks to everyone that's here um, to listen to the show tonight. So I'm excited about having a conversation with you. So um, as I was reviewing some of the uh, notes that I created for tonight's interview, um, one had to do with what what is your origin, right? Um, What's your backstory? So uh, my answer to that really is that I am Northern born and Southern bred. So I was born in Trenton, New Jersey, um, which is my dad's hometown. And I was raised in Camden, South Carolina, which is my mom's hometown. And um, and so just to kick it off, I thought I'd let everyone know um, a bit about about me and where I come from. Um, Of course, K through 12 was in Camden, South Carolina, but uh, I earned a bachelor's degree from a small liberal arts um, institution in Spartanburg, South Carolina called Wofford College. You may not have heard of it, um, but it is a very popular school here in South Carolina. Um, I, fun fact, I'm probably the first, if not the only, African-American to earn a um, degree in German from this institution. So after Walford, I went on to study at Boston University, 
earned a Master of Science degree in uh, print journalism, um, went into industry, and then some years later decided that I wanted to return to academia. Um, and I did so at the University of South Carolina, where I earned an MBA and a PhD. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I think it's really awesome, not only how you got started, but the part of your story, your career story you shared with me is how you started out in corporate America. And, you know, academia wasn't, you know, directly on your path. So do you mind sharing with us, you know, that transition time from going from corporate America to academia? And like, what were you thinking? Was that planned? Was that coincidental? Um, actually, I think, you know, my calling has always been to be an educator. Um, and, but when I finished my degree at Boston University, I had a strong desire to just stay there and work for the university until I figured out what I wanted to do next. But I, um, I had an uncle, um, and uh, he was the first one to have received a college education in our family. So he was kind of like the wise one, the, the great sage. I love um, that term, by the way. I love that term. <laughs> keep going. Tell us about the wise one. And yes. keep going. So he convinced me, as well as my family members, that the proper uh, path would be for me to go into industry because the rationale was, um, it's easier for me to leave industry and go into academia than it is for me to leave academia and go into industry. So why not try industry and just see um, see if you like it? And so I did that. I did not like it. Um, I knew immediately that I was on the wrong path. And, um, and so like five or six years years in, I just made the decision. I, you know, I started to do the soul searching that we all do in our late 20s, you know, like, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? What is my path? And I was starting to do a bit of that. And I had a very good friend um, at the time I was living in Jacksonville, Florida. And he, he called me one day and he said, you know, I'm quitting my job. And so, uh, yes, so I had um, my uncle, the wise one, who told me to um, try corporate America first um, because it would make an easier transition if I decided to go back in to academia. Um, but like I said, I knew immediately that it was not the right fit for me. Um, but I tucked it out um, for five or six years. But again, um, as I mentioned previously, I was in my late 20s. Um, feeling like I wasn't walking in my purpose and that I needed to figure that out. Um, a very good friend contacted me uh, one day out of the blue and just said, you know, I wanted to let you know I am quitting my job and selling all of my possessions and I'm moving to Tallahassee because I'm, I want to be a college professor um, and I want to, I need the PhD in order to do that. And uh, Calvin, when he said that to me, immediately I knew that was it. That was my path. Um, so, so shortly thereafter, I contacted my mother and announced to her that um, I'm quitting my job. Uh -huh. I'm selling my house and all of my worldly possessions, and I'm moving back to South Carolina and I'm going to pursue um, a, an MBA and a PhD. And then 
um, I'm going to work for Benedict College, just like that. And, you know, of course, you know how moms are. Um, They have to vet the whole thinking um, to make sure that uh, you aren't missing any details. So I I got a lot of questions, but um, I stood my ground. She saw that I was serious. I did all of the above in terms of selling things and moving um, and just started my uh, return to academia at the University of South Carolina. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, because, you know, I know that backdrop is very important. You know, tell us about, you know, you finally decided to, you know, essentially work at Benedict College. Tell us about Benedict College in the history of the university, the college there. You know, tell us about some of the things that you guys are very proud of. Okay, absolutely. And so um, I let me just start by saying I, I love BC. That's how we refer to Benedict as BC. I love BC. Um, I have been there um, for going on 20 years now. Um, it was my first job out of school, and I have just stayed there because what we are doing, the work that we are doing, resonates so deeply with me. Um, so a bit of history for those who may not be familiar with Benedict College. We are a small um, private liberal arts um, institution, HBCU, located in Columbia, South Carolina. We were founded by a woman, uh, Bathsheba Benedict, um, who was from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, for those of you who may know where that is. Um, but with the uh, sum of $13,000 in 1870, um, she purchased uh, some acreage and started what became Benedict College. Um, The first class of students consisted of uh, 10 male uh, newly freed slaves. Um, And that was uh, the purpose of the institution was to educate and create powers for good in society. Um, And so that's what we were doing 152 years ago. um, And that is what the college is doing today. Uh, we have a, a, I don't know if I can still call her a new president. Um, she's been at Benedict for five years, um, Dr. Rosalind Clark Artis. Um, so maybe I'll call her new-ish. Um, but she brought in a great deal of energy and great ideas. And her, um, her uh, strategic directives are all centered around enterprise development, innovation, and creating transformative um, learning experiences for for the students. Um, And we've done that in a a multitude of ways, um, way too many for me to to enumerate on this call. But um, what I have done is taken on the challenge that she has given to um, each school's administrator to pursue um, enterprise, student enterprise and innovation. And so some of what I've done is I have uh, revamped or um, I would say strengthened our entrepreneurship program. And um, so we do have a a robust group of students who have um, entered that particular concentration. Um, We have a student business um, incubator that we have created for the students so that they can launch their business prior to graduation um, and receive college credit for doing so um, uh, towards graduation. Um, Also, we have on our campus retooled our um, campus bookstore, 
we no longer use textbooks. Um, We use online resources through a textbook uh, publisher. And so we wanted to utilize that space in a different way. Um, And so we have created what we're calling the BC Small small Retail um, Incubator. And so businesses in the community, um, student business entrepreneurs um, can rent space, um, be it kiosk space or just um, square footage within that facility, and they can sell their merchandise. Um, additionally, there is a, um, an annual festival that the college organizes for um, the community called Harambe. And so within Harambe, there are um, different activities, you know, health screenings, food trucks, entertainment, all what you would expect from a festival. Festival, But there's also um, a shopping village. And so within that shopping village, our student business entrepreneurs are encouraged to uh, participate and sell their merchandise. Um, and uh, we've also created a new um, annual signature uh, event in the business school called Entrepreneurship Week, where students can um, pitch their ideas and win prize money. Uh, we also host a pop-up shop. So again, that they can um, sell their merchandise to uh, faculty, staff, and students, as well as to the community. And most recently, um, we have launched what we're calling the Best Innovation Lab. And so the Innovation Lab, even though it was born in the business school, it is our gift to the college. And the Innovation Lab is the opportunity for any Benedict College student, regardless of their major, to um, come in and innovate. They can take uh, seminars on design thinking to learn how to uh, recognize um, creative solutions to marketplace um, problems. In addition to that, um, they can also um, participate in team projects. And by doing so, they are able to practice their design thinking skills. And then lastly, we have a founder speaker series where we invite in successful founders. Um, And the successful founders can share their ups, their downs, the highs, the lows, and just share their their stories with the students and answer any questions that they may have. So so that's what we're doing. And we're, we're proud of the progress that we've made in the area of entrepreneurship and innovation. Awesome. You know, thank you for sharing that with us, Dr. Tracy, because, I mean, no textbooks, all of this practice and innovation. I often tell people when it comes to entrepreneurship, it's, 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 it's an experience of practice and yes. practice and practice and practice. And what I've heard you say is that these students are having an awesome opportunity to practice their business before they're spending expensive amounts of dollars. They're getting these incubators, this design thinking, these things that other people are not getting until 5, 10, 15 later in their career. I hear you guys are doing some cool cutting edge stuff that are giving students access to practice their entrepreneurship before they're actually launching in a dollars environment. I wanna go to the next question because, you know, in thinking about, you know, the setup for tonight, you know, we have, What better yet to start with you and give us the backdrop, right? The backdrop on entrepreneurship, the backdrop on your story, the backdrop on being a woman, you know, in leadership. You know, 
I want to talk about one of the hot topics, the future of HBCUs. So much is going on, right? There, you know, there's funding, there's challenges, there's shortages, there's surplus. What is your thoughts and observations? Like, you know, can, is there anything you can share with us of what you've observed and what you're hopeful for or some challenges that we should be thinking about when it comes to our children, when it comes to the futures of uh, HBCUs and the challenges that are facing our students? Well, I, you know, I think everyone should be very hopeful um, because as you have probably noticed in your own um, day-to-day um, observations is that um, since the, the murder of George Floyd, um, there's been a lot of outreach to HBCUs and there's been like a resurgence of um, interest in HBCUs. And, and we welcome that, especially those of us who are small and private and tuition driven. Um, we need the support. Um, and so I, when I think about the, the future of HBCUs, I think it's a bright future um, because we are seeing that more and more students are starting to choose HBCUs, um, whereas maybe they would have gone to a predominantly white institution or a PWI. Um, and we appreciate having the talent on our campus um, and so, you know, but to re, but in order for us to survive, in order for HBCUs to survive, um, what I think is critical is that we remain relevant. Um, and so I love the quote, and you've probably heard the quote um, by Wayne Gretzky. Um, you know, he was a great hockey player because he skated to where the puck was going to be, as opposed to where the puck was, right? And so I think that HBCUs have to use that strategy. We have to get ahead of the curve. We have to get ahead of the trend. Um, And of course, that requires resources. And I can give you a quick, for example, um, we, uh, a few years ago, decided that we wanted to add supply chain Um, management to our curriculum. And this was before um, the pandemic, right? Before it became a real issue for everyone. Um, And we have had a very difficult time. We've not been able to offer any courses to the students because we've had such a challenging time hiring someone um, to actually teach the courses. And why is that? Well, because they can make so much money in industry, number one, um, if they have that skill set and that knowledge base. But uh, number two, if they do choose to remain in academia, um, you know, uh, we're not going to win that, um, you know, that that salary fight. We, we can't we can't pay what a predominantly white institution or a larger institution can pay. And um, and so really, we just need the support of the entire community. And, you know, think about, you know, I would challenge everyone on the call to think about adopting an HBCU. Um, I did not attend an HBCU, but I see the benefits of it. Um, having worked at Benedict for 20 years, I give back to, to Benedict. You know, I give, I donate money to Benedict. Um, and so uh, we just, we need support. Um, I was at a meeting, a United Way meeting um, yesterday and uh, was interacting and networking with um, various persons there. 
And um, two professionals working in corporate America approached me and said, hey, um, you know, are you looking for any adjunct faculty? And I said, absolutely. You know, we have a strong business faculty. 75% of our faculty are um, hold terminal degrees. Um, and so we have, you know, uh, we have lawyers, we have entrepreneurs, we have tax experts, CPA, um, a former CEO, bank executives on our full-time faculty. But the adjunct faculty play an important role by being the role models in front of our students. They have that everyday real boots on the ground experience in corporate America. Um, and so they validate everything that we tell our students. Sometimes when the students hear uh, what we've been preaching to them through the mouths of our adjuncts, then all of a sudden, you know, okay, it's validated, it must be right. Uh, and so, uh, so we're grateful. So any way that um, you can think of to contribute to your local HBCU or your HBCU of choice, I would encourage you to do so. Think about if you have a master's degree or a PhD, think about being an adjunct at another, um, another HBCU or, um, or giving back in some way. And uh, one way that we have, um, we're starting to work smarter and not harder um, you're starting to see more and more partnerships between HBCUs. Um, I'll give you a quick, for example, um, uh, a major corporation donated funds to a, um, a group of HBCUs to promote um, entrepreneurship on the campuses of HBCUs. And so even though the HBCUs named in the grant was um, Howard, Morgan State, um, Clark Atlanta, and Texas Southern. But they are serving as the gatekeepers for other HBCUs. So once the grant is up and running, I can apply um, or you know, pitch my idea of how I want to expand the footprint of entrepreneurship on Benedict's campus to Clark Atlanta and then I would be able to receive grant funds that came to them directly. Um, so, you know, we're also partnering in, in other ways um, because we're so small and our faculty uh, human resources are so limited. Let's say we have a student who could graduate if they could have this one course, but this one course is not being offered by Benedict College. We don't have the human resources maybe to teach it the semester that the student needs it. Well, now we are uh, we have partnered with some other small HBCUs so that now that student can take a course with another HBCU, maybe located in Alabama, maybe it's in Texas, but they're offering the course that the student needs so that they can graduate in a timely fashion and not accumulate additional uh, student debt by hanging around for an additional semester. So um, I, 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 the future looks bright for HBCUs, in my opinion. Awesome. Wow. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Tracy, I mean, You've just dropped so many jewels. I just had a thousand questions, but I'm well behaved because I told you I'm not going to ask you any, <laughs> any other questions. I'm so struggling right now because you've asked so many. I mean, it's beautiful, right? And I see in the chat, I mean, the collaboration, the opportunity, the work smarter, not harder to skating 
where the puck is going to be, right? That strategic intent, it is so beautiful. The, you know, collaborating with, you know, those professionals, those adjuncts. I love the story of how you describe, hey, you know, we can tell them all day, but when that adjunct person who's physically practicing coming tell students, you know, they, they, they just get it in a different way. And that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And I can tell that the audience is really listening tonight and they're excited. They're probably excited like me, like they can't <laughs> wait to go look and say, hey, let me go see if I can help out and quote unquote adopt an HBCU, adopt Benedict Colleges. It's such a beautiful thing. You know, so what I want to do is give you a chance to share with us anything that you wanted to share that you didn't get a chance to share. You know, um, for example, we didn't really talk about your woman leadership experience, but I do know that you have an awesome, you know, woman leadership story because, you know, in becoming dean of the business school, you know, I just think that's kind of cool. But I love your story, how you got there, because, you know, I think you also enjoy teaching from what you've told me, you know. So are you are you still at that place where you like you have that patient, that passion for teaching, but you kind of really, you know, are embracing the dean role? Uh, I would just love to hear about that leadership, you know, struggle as a woman or anything you want to share with the women in the audience based on you know, what it's like being a woman in leadership, because we don't have to go into detail, but anything you want to share that you haven't shared. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, what was critical for me was to um, be able to look out into society and just see women uh, role models. And so for me, there have been um, three great role models. Um, I've, I've not met any of them but I have admired them and they inspire me um, to do what I do every day. Um, And so um, one of them, I don't know if if your listeners would know this, but um, Juliana Malvo, um, she inspired me um, to become an academic. Um, I used to watch the show uh, To the Contrary, which was a PBS show, talk show for women that discussed women's issues. And it didn't matter what the topic was, what the question was, Juliana Malvo, I mean, she always had a response. She is a very intelligent, well-spoken economist, and, um, and she made being smart cool. You know, when I was coming up, you were ridiculed um, if you were a smart girl. Um, and so I just liked the way she just owned her intellect. Um, and didn't mind sharing it. Someone else who I greatly admire is, um, well, she is deceased now, but she is the founding dean of um, the business school at FAMU. I never had the pleasure of meeting her, but I know her story. Um, she started out at FAMU as a, um, like a clerical person, an administrative assistant. Um, and um, at some point she decided to uh, pursue Um, an MBA. And I think I'll have to look at my notes, but I think she may have uh, received her MBA from Wharton, went on and earned a PhD, returned to FAMU, became the founding dean of the business school. Guess what? In the mid 70s. Wow. What women were, you know, when you think about the leadership roles that women were afforded at that period of time, Um, you know, being a business school dean was unheard of. And I'm pretty sure, haven't researched it, but I'm pretty sure there were very few female faculty 
um, in the business school at that time. So then she had to have been managing um, not just, you know, the students and building the curriculum, but she was also managing male faculty um, who may not have been receptive to her leadership. I don't know. But um, I love her story. Um, and then the and so from her, I just learned boldness and, um, and and fearlessness, right, from knowing about her story. And then the third uh, female leader I'll mention is um, Dawn Staley. And so for those of you who don't know who Dawn Staley is, she is the um, she is the basketball coach for uh, the women's basketball team at the University of South Carolina, who and they happen to be the national champions. And I remember when Dawn Staley came to the University of South Carolina in 2008. Um, it was very controversial because, first of all, she was a black woman. And second of all, they were paying they were um, going to pay her close to a million dollars a year. And that kind of salary was just unheard of. So it was highly controversial as, you know, is, should we be paying her that much? Of course, nobody questions that now. And, and she's she's gotten a big pay bump since then, obviously. But um, but what I remember about her is I would go to the basketball games before anyone knew who she was. And literally, Calvin, I could count the number of people in the arena. Um, you know, if there was 30 people in the arena, you know, that was probably a good number. And I just watched her. She was always a winner. She had a winning spirit from day one, but she had to be patient. She had to build that team that believed in her vision and that could execute her vision. And so I, she had to exercise patience and, you know, it would be frustrating to watch the teams lose when you knew that, you know, they were be, being coached really well. Um, and so I learned patience from her. And, um, and so it's not, it's not easy being a woman leader. And I'm sure the women on this call, you know, they all know that, but if you can find people who inspire you and who have lessons um, from their own walk in leadership. That is very, very helpful. Awesome. Awesome. Mm -hmm. OMG. I mean, the, 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 the jewels, the pearls, the knowledge, the wisdom, the blessing. Dr. Tracy Dunn, I want to thank you for yeah. sharing your time. I want to thank you for being a supporter of Southern Soul. Whenever you pop in, I was like, is that, Tracy Dunn yeah. and she'll pop in and, you know, she'll just watch us, you know, cut up. But, you know, I appreciate that because that's an endorsement. It's an endorsement of the appreciation. So thank you for seeing us. Thank you for believing in us. And thank you for taking time to come and share with us your story and mm -hmm. your experiences. As we get ready to transition to Dr. May, Go may ahead. I say one more thing? Yes, one please more. do. Um, so, one more reason why HBCUs are worthy of, of our love and our attention and our support. Um, let me just read a few statistics and then I promise that's that's my last statement. Um, HBCUs make up 3%, only 3% of all higher ed institutions, 3%. Yet, we confer 17% of all bachelor's degrees awarded to black students in the US. So almost one in five black students 
who receive a bachelor's degree is being educated by an HBCU, yet we're only 3% of all the higher ed institutions. Of all the STEM-related bachelor's degrees, 24% are conferred by an HBCU, so almost one in four. Um, HBCUs are responsible for 40% of all Black engineers, 40% of all members of Congress, 50% of Black lawyers, and 80% of Black judges. So we are doing the work, and um, and we we need your support, and we would appreciate your support. And so that's that's my last uh, statement of the evening. Thank you for allowing me to say it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tracy. Thank you for sharing it. You know, you definitely, you know, offered a, a very powerful introduction and segue. Um, one of the things we're planning to do is pull together a consortium of um, alumni relations, you know, administrative staffs at HBCUs and bring together a panel to talk about the future of HBCUs. And thank you for sharing that because, you know, it's definitely given me the confirmation that it's definitely a panel and a platform that we need to bring awareness to because some of us may hear about it, but we're not as close to it. Those of us similar to you who went to a PWI, but are, were close enough to that HBCU experience to begin to feel the value. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your time. You're probably going to get a few questions in the chat. You know, I think one person was asking how you spelled the name of the um, um, the three women that um, inspired you. So that's one question I saw. But um, feel free to hang out with us, you know, as we chat with Dr. Dale Gines. Um, or, you know, um, feel free to respond to a few questions in the chat. Sure. And look forward to seeing you again soon popping up here at Southern Soul. Thank you, Calvin. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you. People tonight, OMG, y'all can tell when I get excited, right? When I get excited, I don't, my words don't even make sense because, you know, I be moving a thousand miles per hour. You know, I got a thousand questions, but I got to behave myself, right? And in behaving myself, what I'm trying to do is not ask, you know, too many questions, right? But OMG, what a great, you know, opportunity to hear Dr. Tracy just kind of share her story. So I'm getting ready to spotlight uh, Dr. Dale now. I think he is on. And Dr. Dale, if you can hear me. Yep, there you are. Needed your video. Let me go ahead and spotlight you now. I got your video. Give me a second. Uh, let's see. Now we're ready to go. I see him. You want me to spotlight him for you? Yeah, if you can, that'd be great. There he is. Thank you. Thank you. And did you get it? Let me know when you got it. Okay. Spotlight it. Awesome. Dr. Dale, how you doing, brother? I'm good. What's going on? Awesome. Awesome. You got a chance to listen in. What you think about that? I mean, I Dr. It. Tracy. I love it. Like, you know, I mean, I've, I've been talking forever about how HBCUs really need to be at the forefront of Black entrepreneurship. So hearing about the development of her staff or the curriculum, um, the, the innovative projects that she has for the students, I think it's critical. We'll talk more about why that is. <clears throat> you know, probably in this episode, but I just love what you're, you're doing, Dr. Uh, Dunn. Um, and so hats off to you and what you got going on down there. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's really beautiful to sit there and watch, you know, because, you know, I, I sometimes I kind of try to count the years back when I was doing in, in business school. 
And then I get lost because, you know, so many things have changed and evolved, right? You know, even the topic that we're talking about tonight, um, when I looked at it, you know, I was looking at your book and I think it was you that kind of spoke that in 2010 is when entrepreneurship ecosystems, you know, when people begin to talk about it, right? It was around 2010, I think. That's when you started seeing the field, you know, really start to take off. You know, people have been using the term for a minute, but, you know, the you really started seeing the nation start coalescing around this idea of ecosystems, uh, you know, which we as Black people know, you know, the be- metaphor I use all the time is it takes a village to, to raise an entrepreneur. I mean, and we know that concept well, you know, from our community, but the same applies for entrepreneurship. And so we've been able to do some cool work over the past decade, national changing work, I'm proud to say, in the economic development field in that space. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty exciting. But what I'll do is jump in. But before we jump in, I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself, right? Because who can do it better, right? Uh, you know, I had a person tell me, you know, we were talking about, you know, public speaking or whatever. And she was like talking, she had a sales background. She said, like, you know, when it comes to me, if I can't sell this, she talked about herself, right? She said, I can't sell nothing. So Dr. Dill, tell us who you are. Sell it to us. Tell us about what you do. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's, it's better when other people say it because then it doesn't sound like you're being egotistical. <laughs> but um, I'll I tell you just a little bit about myself. We don't have to go into details. So yeah, I work for the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. I do our small business and economic development for our seven states. And um most nationally known for what we just introduced, which is called entrepreneurship ecosystem building, which is really a form of economic development that looks at the holistic context or the environment in which entrepreneurs start um, and grow businesses. <clears throat> and so I've been banging on that for years, and it came out of my background uh, of being in North Omaha, which is predominantly Black community, Omaha, Nebraska, where I live, and really coming up early stages in banking and then doing, um, you know, like running a incubator, micro lender, and just seeing, you know, in our community, like for example, in 2008, uh, P report came out, research report came out showing we had the number one uh, African-American poverty rate in the nation and the number three um, adult African-American poverty rate in the nation. And I'm sitting here like, we got Warren Buffett here, more Fortune 500 companies than anywhere else in the nation at the time, um, noted for our charitable giving, um, you know, nationally, stable economy, all of these things. And I'm sitting here like, why are black people so poor? And so, you know, going through my financial background, you know, both um, as a community advocate, because I've been doing community work since I was 17. Um, and then my professional work, you know, as in banking and then in um, alternative, you know, small business systems. Um, you know, I was just like, there's got to be a better way. And so I started talking about ecosystem building before I even knew ecosystem building was a thing. Um, and so that's just kind of got in my work, but yeah, so, so my educational background is, um, actually funked out in my first college. So, uh, you, cause you got an engineering degree, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, so, so I was one of the top 10% academics, black academics in the nation when I graduated from high school and they, they were selling me on the fact that, Hey man, you get a math and science, you need to go into engineering. We, we didn't have a lot of money growing up where I came from. And so they're like, you can start, you can start your career making forty thousand dollars a year. I'm like, forty thousand dollars, sign me up. So I get on, I get on campus at University of Nebraska Lincoln. So that all my school paid for, right? You know, at the time they were throwing money at smart, smart black kids, and they were paying me money back. So how, how old are you, Calvin? Uh, I need to. We're about the same age, right? 
Yeah, I'm. I'm say. Let's say uh, I grew up in the. Was born in the seventies. Let me say that. Yeah. So we're about the same age, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you, uh-huh. you, so you remember silk shirts, rayon shirts, Jabot jeans, white case twists, right? Oh cool. yeah, man. Oh, the yeah. Jabot yes, jeans, the polo boots, the <laughs> yeah. Merite Francois Jabot. I, I get so many scholarships <laughs> back. I had every color of Jabot jeans from the scholarships that I, I was getting. So I was running around flossing on campus. I was one of the first kids to have braids back before I lost all my hair way back in the 90s before it became a thing like the kids now. Go up there, man, walk, walk, walk in the door. Um, you know, that first engineering class and was looking around at the kids. I'm like, nope, I ain't doing this. Spent the whole semester, you know, drinking and playing basketball and place. What was it? PlayStation back then? No, maybe it was Sega. It was Sega back then. Mm-hmm. Flunked out, 0.25 GPA. Wow. So I, started, I started bouncing around, went to Creighton University for a minute. End up landing at um, uh, a Bible college in Omaha where I played basketball, which was a godsend because it helped me get through. End up falling into a business degree. And that really started my, uh, you know, educational journey because it dovetailed really with my community advocacy work around what we're talking about, entrepreneurship. Then I got like, I don't know, two master's degrees. I got this PhD. I'm a certified economic developer. So all those things just flow from it. But um, you know, it's just, I'm a community guy and honestly, I'm a grassroots guy at heart, but you know, like like a lot of us black people do, we understand each environment we have to live and play in. And we understand how to communicate. We have the, the good ones of us, we learn how to communicate in each of those environments to be effective. And so that's just something that I've had to do. But at the end of the day, I'm a grassroots guy. Awesome. You know, thanks for sharing that story. And because, you know, as we speak tonight, people are going to see all of the pieces come together, right? They're going to see that, hey, you started out here, you went over here, but how it came together. You know, as we sit down and talk, and actually I heard you speak, man, I got excited, right? And as I told you in my introduction, it's rarely that I see somebody who not only gets it, but they break it down. And, you know, and, and I really appreciate about you, right? So here at Southern Soul, we like to have fun, you know, and I noticed the first time. So, you know, excuse us as we geek out. But, you know, this is one thing we believe. You ain't got to do all that extra, right, to break mm-hmm. it down and have the conversation. So welcome and feel, you know, that this is home. This is part of home. So feel back to come. Feel free to come back anytime. Tell me this. You know, you talked about with your story is that, you know, you started out here. Things changed. You were smart. But then there were some challenges. One of the things you said that I really enjoy about your story is that you were able to marry advocacy, faith, work in finance with business understanding, which served as the foundation for your rest of your career. Tell us about all that. What does that even mean? Um, It's really interesting. So, you know, and this is a great question because, you know, when you're talking to people like, you know, bourgeois people, bourgeois black people have to understand you're still black, Mm -hmm. right? And that you can't escape that essential essentialness of of who you are as an individual based upon the way America sees you. Now you can see yourself differently, of course, and people, you can see people differently in your circle, but at the end of the day, you know, no matter how we come to this, this is, this is how we are perceived externally and the forces of the United States have been set up against us or set up to exploit us from the beginning. By the way, this is the views of Dell guys, not the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, nor the Federal Reserve System. I forgot to say that. So, so you have these kind of layers of perspective of blackness where at the core, you know, like the lowest common denominator, we say that is a math term because it's the place where you can't reduce the fraction anymore. If y'all remember math, you know, I hated doing them, but you know, this is, this is who we are. And we are uh, collectively in this boat called the United States where we have helped to build it. 
Um, but yet we've never been able to fully participate in. And I wrote a, like my last one of my last PhD papers was I wrote a paper called Can Black Power Be Achieved in a Command to Enjoy Society? And I really interrogated the concept of, of, of black power, why the black civil rights movement faltered and all of these other things. And so but all of this work, it dovetails. And so what I, I like to explain to people, if you want to know me, there's basically three things you need to know about me. One is I grew up playing street ball almost my entire you know, childhood, eight hours a day. I would go down in the Nebraska winters and sweep off the, the snow off the ground and play that. And so I'm in the hood playing and learning how to play that. And for those of you who play street ball, know that that's a cultural experience that is hard to replicate. So that's point one. Two, I was raised in a, you know, a Christian environment where you know, early, especially early stage, you know, the foundation of faith, sacrifice, and service was was a real thing. And then the third, you know, of course, and I don't want to take anything away because my parents really were the ones that laid the foundation for me. That's a given, but I'm not, we don't have to talk about that. I just want to put that out there. But then the third is X-Clan. So uh, you remember X-Clan. Yes, so, X-Clan. When, when you said X-Clan, Prince, X-Clan. and what else? Michael when Jackson, we, right? X, X, well, yeah, my favorite <laughs> artist, X-Clan Prince, Michael Jackson. But X-Clan in particular, and pe- when people say music doesn't have any influence on kids, they're they're wrong. My first two albums, I had a sneak from my parents, were the first get, uh, Ghetto Boy album, and on the other side was Stetsasonics. And I would sneak that under my bed and i play it. And I've been listening to Ghetto Boys when I left in the gym now. I went back. I've been taking the journey back. But the music, the, the piece of music that influenced me the most was Brother J, Professor <clears throat> X in X-Clan and the Blackwash movement. So I'm sitting, all of these things like coalesced you know, in me to kind of be like, okay, this is the foundation of how I see the world and the community. And these are the very important things is that we can't take for granted the uniqueness of our experiences and our influences. We need to draw them, filter out the things that don't fit with where we're trying to go, but retain those. And to this day, I can point to you to how those have have guided my career, my journey in terms of supporting the community from day one. I mean, I still do reentry work. I still work with an organization called Black Men United. I still do community things and advocacy all. And, and the fact that I'm one of the best people in the nation at what I do, that's irrelevant because my community and my faith and the way I see the world is rooted in my community. And I think too often what happens with a lot of us is we get we get um, bamboozled by the concept of the American dream and this hyper-individualism that, that hyper-capitalism produces. And we look at that and say, if, if if I can't get what I can get for myself, then I'm, it, I don't want to see anybody else succeed, right? When we, we know that historically, when you go back throughout our history, the best successes we've had as Black people, even including capitalism and entrepreneurship, have been done within the context of community. And so that's, that's how I'm rooted and I'm wired. And um, <clears throat> it's most likely be the, be the way I am till I die. Well, you know, thanks for sharing that. I'm telling you, I get, I get so, I got excited. I'm wiping a tear because born, raised in Texas, all of the music you speak of is the music I grew up to. But I, I'm out of here in Atlanta now. I call it on this East Coast. You know, mm. all they worry about is New York and all that other kind of stuff, right? The stuff they talk about, you talk about Ghetto Boys, X-Clan. They may know a little bit about X-Clan, but what you did is you took me back. Mm. You took me back to the late 80s, early 90s, coming of age. Coming of age and it's shaping character, it's shaping personality, it's shaping some belief systems. 
But then you go off and I was reading, you know, some bio getting ready. I'm like, how many degrees this brother got? I count by 10 of them, Daryl. I don't, I mean, Dale, I don't know how many, but I counted somewhere about 10, right? But I'm like, but then to see with all of that, you still have a passion for the music and the culture and going back to that street ball. And I like he called street ball because, you know, South Carolina Ren, he's listening now. He claimed he can play some street ball, but I know he's listening and he's picking up what you're putting down. Because he knows the culture in street ball and how that can shape an experience. Let's talk about the financial part because we got the foundation. Mm-hmm. You, early in your career, spent a time definitely working in the communities. You work with the unbanked, it's called. And I know about the unbanked. The unbanked, I spent some time and discovered that the unbanked are people who could not qualify for a, a, a checking account was like a $30 billion industry. So they would start to get into payday loans and whatever, but I won't go there. Tell us about your experience where you would begin to see this ratio of, you know, out of 30 small business loans, only one would get approved. Tell us that backdrop and what got you started when you begin to see the problem. Yeah. So I so like like most people, I fell into both banking and economic development. Heck, I fell into business. One thing I didn't say is even though I was one of the top academics in the in the United States um, when I came out of school, nobody ever told me I could own anything ever. They didn't tell me I could own a house. They didn't tell me I could own a stock. They didn't tell me I could own a business. This is the way so many of our generation was shaped, which is why I was so excited to hear Dr. Tracy, um, you know, talking about their entrepreneurship program, because one of the ways you exclude masses of people out of the process of generating wealth is through the systems, particularly the education system, that's really trains us to be employees and not owners. And that disproportionately hurts, hurts Black people because the number one um, you know, new data came out now that that um, Latinx and Black Americans are ten times more likely to be um, have ten times more wealth on average than non-entrepreneurs. Um, so it's it's almost the systemic bias that we almost never ever talk about. And so I fell into it because um, you know my wife got pregnant when I was in college playing ball, and I could only go into two degrees. One was a counseling degree, and one was business management because those were the only two accelerated degrees. I chose business management. And then at the same time, I was working at a newspaper doing classified advertising and a buddy of mine got a job at U.S. Bank. And he said, Dell, there's opportunities at U.S. Bank, you know, to be an in-store banker, which is a terrible banking job, by the way. But being an in-store banker, making $35,000, I was like, bet, sign me up. I don't know anything about banking, but y'all going to pay me that much. I'm on. And that really is what started my banking career, my understanding of how this stuff works, particularly for Black Americans, because I, I worked in a Black uh our black community in banking, my whole banking career, with the exception of six months where I worked in our Latino community. <clears throat> and so I, I saw people day to day, like, and you ain't been a banker until you've been an in-store banker in the hood. People are coming, getting their groceries. They're trying to, man, I was trying to fight people. They were trying to fight me. You know, all, all these different things. It's like, you could, that's, that's, that was that environment at the time because people come and talk to you crazy when their money's messed up, even if it's their oh, fault. Yes. And I'm like, oh, you got me twisted. You know, you think this counter is, is really the only thing that's stopping me from coming around? Oh, yeah. You know? Street ball so is coming up. It, it came out. Like it came out. I was really, <laughs> I, would, I would classify myself as unrefined as a young man. Okay. So, so anyway, so, so I go from in-store banker to personal banker personal banker to small business banker, small business banker to business banker, all within my black community. So I saw the whole gamut. And the, the story that you're telling is the time I was a personal banker okay. at what was then called, um, uh, it's called Bank of the West now, it was Commercial Federal Bank back then before they got bought. And I, I took 30 
loan applications one month and got one approved. One approved. And so I'm sitting here now, you know how we make money in banking by selling product and making loans. And so I'm doing 30, I did 30 loans, one applications one month and got one approved. I'm like, this is terrible. And that's when I started doing financial literacy classes over at the library, which is next door. I'm like, outside of the bank, I'm like, we need to do something around this. And so then you go to small business banking and, you know, the lack of uh, misunderstanding of, of what it takes to do business was very, very high, even for people that started a business, especially when it came to getting a loan. So there's this, this other gap. So I'm seeing these huge vacuums of knowledge within our community, which are the most critical things to be successful and empowered and have independent communities in a capitalist society is your ability to, to own and control the, your process of money and wealth and to be able to generate wealth and, and employment through entrepreneurship. And I'm sitting here looking at this like, so, so everything was clicking because I told you I was doing community work, but it was agnostic. Mm -hmm. Like my, my first, uh, I was doing a, uh, a public access show at 21 called There's Hope and There's Help. And my ego was extreme. And I was, my first show, I'm, tell, I was, I'm sitting on my couch filming, filming, talking about, I'm going to tell y'all how to solve all of your problems. Okay. I'm like, this is the, this is the, the, the arrogance of youth, right? Then you, you start learning stuff and you realize, no, nah, I can't, I don't know anything. People need to help me with my problems. Yes. But, but it, what it, what it was doing is as I was going through, I was able to marry the community advocacy side with my technical knowledge of banking and finance. And then that gave me a pathway because then everything started syncing together. Because it started, it, it was the it was the input into me being able to create a worldview or a framework of solutions, which I feel are still necessary for us to solve the challenges of systemic racism and lack of power in the United States. And I, I've just been working. And now I don't want people to get it twisted. See, because and I tell I tell young people this all the time, especially young black people who are are, are, are stepping up in the leadership. Being a black leader doesn't mean you only lead black people or that you can only lead black people, right? So a lot of times we ended up get labeled because we care about our community, we advocate for it, and then all of a sudden we get pigeonholed. Don't let people do that to, to you. Like your leadership is transcendent and if you can help lead in our community, you can lead anybody. So for me, when I started ecosystem building work, I was spending 75% of my time in rural communities. Literally, and it's different in rural South, right? Where you got a lot mm -hmm. of black people. Mm -hmm. In the rural Midwest, sometimes I would be the only black person in a multi-county yes. yes. You know, so I'm going out there and they keep asking me back, right? Because I was offering something of value and, and that they had never had or never seen before and they were struggling. And so then that whole pivot point came um, when it was, um, Oh, who's the brother that got got killed by the police in Baltimore? Why is his name just escaped me? I apologize yeah. for that. No, but, no. The, but the uprisings in Baltimore, I was actually speaking, um, keynote speaking at a conference, a national conference for um, economic development and talking about mm -hmm. ecosystem building the mayor's staff. Yeah, Freddie Gray. Thank you, Tracy. Uh, Freddie Gray. And when the riots were occurring, they the mayor's staff was there and, and, and talking to me after uh, my session, I started explaining to them why I believe riots occur and what we need to do, uh, or uprisings, however you want to title it, occur. And then um, <clears throat> I immediately went back to my boss and I said, you know, we've been organic. I don't ask anybody to act, come speak, but we need to take this, this work that we've done around ecosystem building and really focus on, you know, our, our BIPOC communities, our Black communities, 
um, because they're the ones that need it. And honestly, that was a full circle because that's why I started doing the work in the first place. So I was able to come back to it. And that's where probably a lot of the cool stuff that we're going to talk about uh, the next couple of minutes have come from out of that work. Yeah, that yeah. And, you know, and I love how this story is building. So for the audience, be patient because we're getting there. Right. But what we're doing is we're building a pyramid. Right. We take a man who's coming of age. He's coming of age in the Midwest. Right. It's different from Atlanta out of here where you got mm. a million black people per square mile and they like, well, if we want something, we have it. We Wakanda. It ain't like that out west. Right. I mean, you drive, you see, you know, you know, the hay bales, the coyote and the roadrunner. And then there's one black folks. It's different out there. Right. So and then all of a sudden the man gets identity. He gets identity of how he's going to lead, how he's going to begin to advocate that. Then as a young man, as he tells a story, he says, hey, you know, I'm getting ready to go and, you know, we're ready to march. I'm gonna, I got my show. And he said, whoa, whoa, it's complicated. So then as we talk back, he says, you know, even though this economic um, community development or also known as, uh, well, I'm trying to say entrepreneurship ecosystems became popular in 2010, as everybody's talking about it, in the community, we kind of been talking about it a little bit. But as I talk to people preparing for the show, we don't often talk about all the pieces, right? We don't often cover it in a holistic way. So let's jump into it, um, Dale. Tell us, what is, you know, economic community development? Because you wrote about this in your book. Yeah. But then when you tell us about economic community development, just kind of take us through a quick history of what that is and then show us how it leads to these entrepreneurship ecosystems. Yeah, so so community development is old school. It's been around for a long time. It's, it's one of the the even lack of a better term fields that came out of like the 30s 40s and 50s where you had a lot of things that came out workforce development the economic development fields we know it and community development which is really designed to empower and engage and organize communities to 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 grow on their own behalf <clears throat> and so that's our field so at the fed we actually uh, came out of what is known as the cra act of the 1970s which was a community reinvestment act which was put in place because so many banks were redlining black communities. That's where they will take deposits from a black community, but they won't do any lending. And Congress said, no, we got to check that. So the CRA Act came out in the 70s, and then the Federal Reserve, which is the largest monetary um, policy institution in the history of the world, um, you know, developed their department. That department has a congressional mandate. And so I'm a function of that. Our primary role is to focus on low and moderate income populations, uh, and we do it in a variety of ways. I'm not going to get into it. And so when you get into economic development, uh, most of you be familiar with, and this is why it's been so unsuccessful for Black people, why I can point to Omaha and say, you know, we have this great economy, more Fortune 500 companies than any, but Black people are still broke. As you all know this, most of you saw Amazon and everybody trying to get the Amazon headquarters throwing billions of dollars in incentives. Well, that's, that's the way most uh, cities and states do development, if they're of any size, trying to throw money and in incentives at companies to bring in and bring jobs. The problem is most of the time when they do that, right, they'll bring a company in, but that company is not aligned with the, the jobs black, uh, the pop, black population needs, nor does it help revitalize the community. So basically communities are giving up their tax base to bring this company in and that company isn't benefiting black communities at all. Um, and then you have things like in the seventies, urban renewal, where they were bisecting our communities with highways, cutting them in half. Most of you know about that. Um, and so, <clears throat> When I started working, I was like, okay, you know, the 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 greatest source of power in a capitalist society is is the power to control your economy. 
And the one thing that has been exclusionary of Black people where they tried very hard since the inception, I mean, we were brought over here as assets on a balance sheet. We weren't brought over here as human beings. So we were brought over as tools for capitalism, not capitalists, right? So there's a distinction. But yet, most people don't know that at 50 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, Black businesses grew by 1,150%. And within the Jim Crow era where was segregation, now it wasn't all roses, you know, otherwise we would have been fighting to have full integration. But what it did allow us to do is kind of create these, these relatively autonomous economies like Black Wall Street and others. And so that really paved the way. Like when you look at what O.W. Gurley did in Greenwood, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street is unprecedented. Black Wall Street, we're still talking about today is one of the greatest symbols of, of Black economic resilience and power. And it was 15 years. He, he started it in 1906. They bombed it in 1921. And we're sitting here talking, we need a 50 year one way to change our, our economic condition as Black Americans. And I'm like, why? They show we couldn't. So ecosystem, they could, was ecosystem building really is trying to say, okay, like mo a lot of my work has been on black women entrepreneurs. So it's okay, let's look at this. That's why I like what Dr. Tracy uh, Dunn said about uh, design thinking. If we look at black women entrepreneurs producing a million businesses within a decade, I believe it's the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in the history of the United States. How do we could put a system of support around them that addresses their, their technical needs? Like how do they get their skills? How do they get their money? How do they get their networks? with the culture around them, the policy around them, with the built environment, physical and digital around them so that we can make them accelerated as fast as possible. Or as I say, you know, if black women generated on average $27,000 on average sales within that, that decade, what would happen if we could scale them up to 10,000? That's $10 billion more in black communities and black households, just by getting them to generate $10,000 more on a year on average. And you know what, Calvin, they still, even at, if we got them to 37,000, they would still be $17,000 less in average sales than their next closest women peer group, which is Native American women, but just 10,000 more. So that that's where, you know, we have to pull it together and go from how do we look at community? How do we look at economy? How do we look at economic development? And how do we build it around entrepreneurs? And that's what ecosystem building is in a nutshell. I mean, there's obviously more technical stuff but it's the stuff that we're used to doing in black communities back before we started getting fragmented by integration and postmodernism and individualism is we rallied around people to help them produce and be better in the community as a, a general way that we view the world. That was our, our black worldview up until probably 40 years ago. Well, thank you for sharing that. And you gave us a lot of information, so I'm gonna recap a little bit because I love it and I wanna kind of pull out a few jewels. You took us through the history of what, you know, um, development is, right? What it is, you know, um, what was my term? Um, community development is. And you kind of gave us a quick overview of entrepreneurship ecosystem. You also gave us a history lesson, right? And I love the statement where you talk about hyper-capitalism leads to hyper-individualism. Hyper-capitalism leads to hyper-individualism. So let's describe this. Why is this important to the ecosystem? So we have black women, arguably probably one of the fastest growing entrepreneurship, you know, segments in the history of whatever. And sisters are doing their thing. And there's this opportunity of how do we take this growth and this opportunity and surround these women with what they need? I talked about the holistic thing. 
But let's kind of dig into this whole entrepreneurship ecosystem. You have, what do you call it, the five C's of entrepreneurship ecosystems that you talk about. Do you mind sharing with us what the five C's and what they are? And I want to end on community. And I tell you why. Because the community is going to go to that history lesson you just gave us. But give us the five C's and why they're important. So now the audience can see what a holistic ecosystem of support looks like for these Black-owned businesses. Yeah, and, and we, we now use six. Oh, six now? Okay. So six elements. Three three are the tools that entrepreneurs have and three are the environment in which they they live in. But the, the simplest way to put it is money. <laughs> Like, you know, uh, you know, you need capital, you know, to be able to launch a business, even if it's a small dollar amount, you need, you know, connectivity, you need your, your network, your social capital. Um, most people don't realize how important that is. Just, you know, you don't, I mean, you have to realize how many deals are done by people saying, Hey, I know this person, let me plug you in. Um, black people by and large have been left out of a lot of social capital networks. Um, so you have those two you have your skills, you know, you have your entrepreneurial skills like this, because it, it takes, there's two forms of skills in entrepreneurship, right? There's your technical skill, the thing that you actually do, like in your case, you know, it's your technical skill as a podcaster. And then there's your general skill, you know, how do you manage market, do operations, you manage your accounting, right? So those are the tools that entrepreneurs have you need. Um, and then you have the environment. And so I'm going to work backwards. So the policy environment, um, like, you know, we're still fighting over ridiculous policies of having people who just want to hear braid hair go through two years of uh, cosmetology school. And all they want to do is braid hair, right? Well, that's an impediment. That's a policy many communities are looking looking to overturn. But you have policies that can be positive or negative, enhancing, you know, or, or disempowering. You have your infrastructure. This is your business, built environment. This is the place, you know, because entrepreneurs live in places. And a lot of Black people are concentrated around other Black people. And a lot of times those communities are disinvested in. So what is it like? What are the streets like? What is the what is the um, the quality of life in that given place? Do people want to be there? Do they have access to, you know, retail shops that are affordable? Are they priced out? What, you know, all those things. Also, the digital environment, like there's big issues of access to broadband, even an urban core, right? Like the brother, the, the, the mayor of Syracuse is talking at a, a Brookings event I was at. He's like, you know, only 25% of our black community has access to high quality broadband in Syracuse, New York. So mm -hmm. you, you have that. And then finally, you know, that community, that culture um, side. Um, it's, 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 it's huge because culture is kind of the unwritten rules of the way you're supposed to behave that people don't really have to tell you, you just absorb like through osmosis. Like I told you about street ball. Like if, if you grew up playing street ball, there's just certain things that you knew were you were supposed to do and certain things you didn't, you know, on, on the court, like there's certain rules, you don't undercut people, you know, you, you got to argue for your calls, all of these things. You Nobody had to tell me, Dell, you got to argue and you got to fight for your call or they're just going to run over you. You just pick it up, right? Mm -hmm. In our community, it's, 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 it's about the culture. Do we have a, a strong culture of entrepreneurship, a culture of supporting entrepreneurs, a culture of risk-taking, a culture of, of reaching out beyond our borders to other folks? A lot of Black people think just because they're Black, they got to sell to Black people. Like, but the most successful Black businesses are the ones that sell to the best marketplace. So if you, you put all of these together within an environment that's connected, because all these pieces need to work together to be the maximum effective, that's your ecosystem. So I, so then I, I would, you know, ask your audience, I say, now take yourself to a mental space where you're putting your black entrepreneur, woman, male, old, young, whatever, in that environment. 
does your community of those six things that I pointed out to, are all six of those things working together to build the capacity of that entrepreneur? Or do you have these huge holes and gaps in it where entrepreneurs have to fight and struggle just to, to, to get off the ground and to be able to do something? Are they swimming upstream in your community to start a business or are they swimming downstream with the current? Most in our most of our black communities, through, through no fault of ours, honestly, in many ways, are having to swim upstream. So black women are killing it despite all of the obstacles that are in their in their way, right? So we need to be able to take those obstacles out. So, because if they're going 50 miles an hour now, how do we take the obstacles out of the road? How we we take the foot off the brake so that they can get up to 100 like their skills, talent, and history suggest that they should be. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Man, you did it. I mean, you did it. I mean, you were able to kind of bring that together and make it succeed. Tamika's going to share some links. And what we're going to do is do some open discussion because I think now that people get it, they have the history, they have the backdrop, they see you, they see how you married all of these things together to create passion to do what you do, right? One of the backdrops is that sometimes, you know, and this is my pet peeve when people are like, oh, I wish black folks would do this. I wish people would do this. Why won't they do this? See, what you just broke down is not the mystical not the invisible, but the stuff that we can see every day. Like you say, braiders just want to braid. They want to do our hair, right? How many impediments are there to do things so simple? But why we're here tonight is we want to open it up to the discussion, and we want you guys to engage with Daryl, I mean, Dale, excuse me, and let's do some QA. If you raise your hand or type your question into the chat, we're going to do your best to kind of have discussion on that. But I want to kind of start the question as Katie and Tamika begin to fill your questions. Type it in the chat, and we're going to, you know, have them read it out. But what we want to do is have some discussion. I want to start with a, a, a question. So, so this is a question for you, um, Dale. And we kind of talked about it before, so you're familiar with the question. You know, what are your thoughts? Or what do you believe that has led to this woman-owned black business segment just growing? And like you said, like a fish swimming upstream. If they're going 50 miles per hour, they're going to be going 100, hour, 100 miles per hour when we begin to surround them with the ecosystem that supports them. What are your thoughts? What's, what's driving this? What, why sisters yeah. number one segment? It's it's a it's a to my me my opinion just just from talking to hundreds of black women entrepreneurs now for the last five years um, or last three three four years um, it's a combination of things in entrepreneurship there's called push pull factors right a pull factor is a is a factor where you see you know a great opportunity and so you go to it a push factor is you're you're trying to get away from something. And so both of those are playing a role in, um, you know, black women entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship. Um, so some of it is based upon the general shift in culture in the United States is being more open to women doing these things. Most people don't realize that it was only in the 1980s that women didn't have to have their husband co-sign with them for a business loan. And so you saw this early stage emergence of, of white women starting businesses in the early 90s. And then I, I really think a couple of factors, positive and negative, have been really pushing Black women to start at scale. So the, the positive factor are shifts in cultural um, behavior towards women and, and perceiving that women can actually be entrepreneurs and business owners. So you have that, you have the access to broader based knowledge as well. I mean, you saw the rise of the internet, which, which lower barriers to knowledge. You saw the rise of things um, in the 80s and 90s, like business incubators and communities and others 
that made resources and information accessible. Um, you also have the fact that, you know, black women, black people in general, black women in particular have been always been very innovative in terms of within our community and going back to slavery of trying to navigate hostile environments through creativity and the creation of opportunity. So you, you've had kind of this legacy in our genetic, you know, uh, way that we came up to this nation. Some of the negative things, and, and, and again, this is my opinion alone and not the, the opinion of the Federal Reserve Bank, but the, but the intense o- oppression and dest- attempted destruction of black men. Um, like, you know, so that, that has significant household impact. And so if you look at the average um, black woman entrepreneur, we have a great infographic in the research report. Um, you know, if you look at it, the average black woman entrepreneur is between 30 and 40. They're working part time. Um, and like I said, they're generating about $27,000 a year. So what this implies is that it's supplementary income, like they're working a job and they're using entrepreneurship probably to, to supplement household income. Like there was a report in the New York Times or Post, I can't remember, a couple of years ago that talked about the number of missing black men within that, that 30 to 40 year, year period. And I think the worst community for that was Ferguson where like there's 12 eligible black women to one black man. And this is because of prison, early mortality and, and other factors. I can't remember how they calculated it. So you have black women, you know, recognize and understandably so that they have to carry a lot of the load, unfortunately, because of some of the impacts on black men. Now, that's not to say black men outpaced, you know, white men in, in um, entrepreneurship starts during that period as well. But 60 percent of all black businesses are owned by black women at this point. No other ethnic group of women is closed, like Latino women, I think own like 47% of all their businesses. So so it's a combination of push-pull factors. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, black women are are becoming some of the fastest educated group of Americans in the the nation. Black men are in the polar opposite of that. But black women are really in in corporate America. And one of the things I found out in my research is that they're getting fatigued. They don't, stuff that we've been talking about for years, just in the hood, right? Like they'll they'll, they'll ask you to train your, they'll ask you to train the white person that's going to replace you or get the job that you were supposed to get. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, but black women have talked about that. Some have had great experiences in the community, in their corporation, but they're just fatigued and want to look at other things. Um, But there's a lot of this, the corporate sector doesn't value me. I've hit my limit. I'm going to try to do something where I can control it. I, I can tell you some great stories from some of the interviews and things that we conducted on that. So you, you look at it, in total, and I think it's a positive thing. And here's why it's positive, even though some of it is coming about for negative reasons, because research shows that the children of entrepreneurs are significantly more likely to be entrepreneurs themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I look at it from a multi-generational lens, right? So if we have a million Black women during that decade that were producing businesses and having children, if we have an op- a great opportunity, if we build strong ecosystems to have this, this seed that they planted in their children, grow to maturity and create, create, you know, strong black economy going forward. The question is, can we get our act together as a collective and really focus on what I would consider is the cornerstone of what should be all our communities, which is our economy. Because if we don't do that, you're still going to have to go to white philanthropists to fund the community actions and the social justice that you want. You're not going to have black philanthropists that can, that have sensitivity to your community. You're not going to have black businesses that can hire your people. So so I think there's a tremendous opportunity, but it's an opportunity that we really do have the potential to miss if we're not very thoughtful in how we engage, just engage our community around economic development over the next five to 10 years. 
Awesome. Awesome. Katie, I see you thinking. I see you got some questions for Dale. I see the few questions popped up in the chat. Katie, go first. What you got for us? Sure. I got a couple of one. Um, Dale, you mentioned the six C's. Um, I believe we thought it was five and it's six, actually. One of those things that you talked about was actually, um, you said technical skills, right, are something that's needed. But you also talked about management skills. So can you talk a little bit about where people can go to get those kind of management skills that would really help them know how to run a business if they if they don't have those skills right now? Yeah, and and this, this is one thing I can say. I'm, I'm kind of happy that the nation is doing better on it, but there's still huge gaps there's especially in our communities there's huge gaps um but usually you have things like um you know small, small business support organizations in your communities there's something every state has called called a sbdc some are good some are bad they're called small business development centers affiliated with the sba um you have organizations like i used to run um called omaha small business network in our black community you have business plan classes you know incubator support micro lending support you have colleges like 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 Dr. Dunn was talking about. You see more colleges, community colleges at lower cost, and then there's so much online now. I think I think the challenge is, Katie, is that one of the entrepreneurial balancing points is whether you're working on the business or you're working in the business. And so, you know, because because we don't have a legacy of role modeling, right? Where we're growing up in environments where our parents have run a business or people close to the family have. We don't kind of have that osmosis experience of it. So we need to supplement it with outside support. Um, and sometimes they can be hard to find. But I, I tell you, if you can find a great, a good mentor or somebody that will take you under their wing and show you the ropes, man, that shortens the learning curve a whole lot. Right, right. Thank you so much, Dell. A quick follow-up question, um, really about capital, quite frankly. Um, what is it going to take to get more venture capital flowing into the Black community? What are your thoughts on that? Well, it, I, I, I go, the big question is, why do we need it? <laughs> so uh, and right, I know people, right. people always start on that, but, but here's the thing. 50% of all businesses don't start with any outside money. The problem is Black people are so broke collectively that we can't draw. So black women and white women literally both start businesses with 50% of their household money. We know the difference though. Like, you know, the, the wealth gap is so extreme that, you know, white women starting money with, with household money versus a black woman is extremely different, difficult. So only a certain percent of businesses every year get funded with venture capital. And, and, and I don't want to go in detail with this because I think there's merits to venture capital. We need to work on the meat and potato capital bank capital, family capital, local, local, you know, investments, alternative strategies, community center capital, um, you know, venture capital is a thing. But the reason that it's, it's such a it's a thing because people make it such a thing. It's easy thing to measure. It's very high profile. You usually see big businesses, businesses that scale really fast. But let me ask you this. If somebody gets venture capital right, and it's not from a, a black a venture capital fund like my, my friend Keisha Cash, love her to death, one of my favorite people, uh, runs Impact America Fund. She's black black woman, um, came from you know the 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 community in um, L.A. Um, but if it's not one of those type of firms, but let's say it's a white led venture capital firm, you're actually giving up a large percentage of your black owned business to white people, and then when you make an exit, which is where you sell it you're now most likely going from being a black owned business to a white owned business. Right. So now you, this goes back to that individualism. 
Now, you as the entrepreneur may make a boatload of money on it, and you maybe do something good for the community with that money you make. But the company itself is now no longer Black-owned, it's white-owned. And so we never really interrogating those things in our community. And so, you know, venture capital is cool. Angel capital is cool. I do encourage better things within that space, like especially like my buddy Rodney Sampson from Opportunity Hub, you know, focuses on. But if we can just get our basic capital sources together, that's where most of our businesses are going to come from anyway, the scalability of them. Katie, just want you to know, you stumbled upon one of Dale's favorite topics, <clears throat> his ah. favorite topics. When you talk about those six C's, the one that, you know, he less worries about is the capital one. Because one of the things we can talk about is you pull some more questions, because I want to end talking about community and the nickname for community is building community means dealing with the crabs in the barrel because the opposite of community is crabs in the barrel. And we're going to end on that, yeah. but uh, I just want to let you know, you stumbled upon a favorite <laughs> question. So don't go there unless you want him yeah. to be talking all night. So. <laughs> and we can do this for hours. So Katie, what other questions you got from the audience before we. Um, okay, sure. There's not, there are other ones also though for Dr. Um, for Dr. Martin. So is she going to come back in to the chat also? I mean, you mean Dr. Tracy? I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. Tracy, yes. Yeah, I think we may have lost her. Um, My goal was that she would log off. So if she's here, she can, but I don't think she's here. Oh, okay. Because there was there were questions about um, actually practical steps for entrepreneurs um, that want to serve as adjunct professors at HBCUs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she made an amazing point just about the fact that even though the HBCUs can't necessarily pay the huge salaries that people might want as a full-time professor, we can certainly, those of us that have advanced degrees can certainly um, perhaps become part of that HBCU ecosystem, right? And so um, there was some curiosity in the chat about yeah. the process to go through that. Let me get her spotlight again. She actually is still here. So thank you, Dr. Tracy, for hanging out with us. Timmy, can you help me spotlight it? Because I can't find it. You know, I can't switch gears and find people at the same time. Can you? Um, I need for her to turn her camera on and then I can okay. spotlight. Dr. Her. Trace, if you turn on your camera, we can spotlight you. All right. In the meantime, we did have another question. <laughs> okay. Um, and I think this one actually came from our friend Daryl Green. Okay. And he was asking. DG um, Live, we call him. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. <laughs> he was asking about what are the what are some of the initiatives um, in the HBCU communities that we would like to see, that we would like people to sort of pool their resources, not just dollar resources, but pull all of their resources and get initiatives started in some of these um, HBC communities, HBCU communities, and in Black communities in general. Um, I'm curious as to whether Dell has some ideas about some things that are really needed since you are so connected to the community also. I'm going to leave that to Dr. Dunn. I'm not even trying to step in her lane. I mean, if we get it, I want her to come back so we could be on the stage together. I think she's but. unmuted. I see her. Um, if you're, if you're unmuted, you can go ahead and speak, um, Dr. Tracy. Let's see. Do you see her? I, I see her and she's been putting info in the. All right. I'm going to get. All right. I'm unmuted. Oh, there, there you are. are. I'm back. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Technical difficulties. So, um, so yes, I, I tried to respond to the questions regarding um, how one would go about um, becoming an adjunct professor. Um, and I, I'm, I apologize, I responded to the person that asked the question as opposed to uh, responding to everyone. But 
Uh, most uh, colleges do have applications on their website. So that would be a great starting point um, if you are able to find out the name of the dean of the business school for a particular HBCU. Um, you can just uh, send an email of interest to them. I would recommend maybe attaching your resume um, and, you know, explaining that you would like to be considered for an adjunct position. Um, that's another way of um, gaining entry into the adjunct pool. But, um, you know, you would still go through the normal interview process, but, um, but most HBCUs are probably similar to us and would love to have um, additional professionals be a part of their adjunct pool. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Dr. Tracy. Katie, you didn't have any other questions for Dr. Tracy? Um, I couldn't keep know, up with the other questions. There's a really practical question in here, and, and I hear it asked all the time. How can you be sure that someone wants to mentor you? Um, because we we often say, find a mentor, find a mentor. And that's not some not, that's not something that's natural for a lot of people. So what's a good process to go through to find a mentor for yourself? Yeah, and I bet I bet Tracy has some great insight on this too from her experience in the, the leadership space. Um, you know, from from our perspective as a as a business side, uh, somebody in the chat reference score service core retired executives. Um, that's usually a good starting point. Sometimes there can be a little bit of cultural in, incongruity between us and the mentors, but you know, like I, I just referencing the Black Women Startups report, you know, that I wrote. A lot of Black women said that mentorship, they really wanted a mentor. Some wanted it to be, you know, a Black female. Some said, I don't care as long as they can give me what I need. So there was mixed mixed on that. So so look at you can look at the technical, the groups that are technically designed to do that as an entrepreneur first. Um, and also look around the community. Like um, there's not networks. Like I found a, a, a cool network because I'm actually going to, I'm working on with Dr. Christy Carter, a new book on Black women entrepreneurs. And I also got fingers crossed the opportunity to do some more research in that space. But, um, you know, one of the things that I found going through that process is that there's a group of, of a uh, national group of black women who are making over a million dollars as CEOs of their own businesses mm -hmm. that network together. So it could be collective network grouping where you find somebody. Um, and sometimes it's just, it's just reaching out and asking people to, to help you. Um, and, and if they can share insight or if you can chat with them every now and then, it doesn't have to be so formal, but you, you are going to have to be the initiator most times because it's yeah. not, there's not a lot of organic things in our community. Um, hopefully if you have a black chamber and they're good, a lot of them aren't, but if they're good, you know, you can do it through there and, and just say, Hey, you know, I need some help. Uh, and, but, but I, and I do want to, I do need to say this try to get a triangulation of support. So at least get three people who you can ask the same question to, because then you can, it'll help you triangulate it because you have people that are gonna come at you with through different lenses and you don't wanna be overtly biased by the mentor who's giving you advice. So that is probably the last one I would leave you with. I wonder if Dr. Dunn has any thoughts on that. It's well, yeah, so I, I was just going to echo what you said. Um, we do have, like a lot of colleges do have um, business development centers or women business centers. Um, sometimes they can connect you with, um, with mentors. Additionally, um, as already stated, there are um, 
organizations in the community that are part of the ecosystem that where you can have access to maybe more mature um, entrepreneurs who may be interested in um, mentoring you. Um, I know here in Columbia, there's several groups that um, there's one that meets every Wednesday morning. There's one million cups. And so there's different um, there's different meeting spaces and places and times where you can connect with, again, the more mature entrepreneurs who may uh, be available to serve as um, service mentors. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Tracy Dunn. Thank you, Dr. Dill Gein. You know, I want to kind of wrap us up, Katie, if you can grab that last question, I want to kind of wrap us up because not only are we over time, but we are excited and we're having a good time, but I want to appreciate and respect everyone's time. And I'm going to wrap us up in um, 10 minutes. So as we begin to wrap up, you know, I just want to take this time to say thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dale, for sharing your time. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the the street ball and the mm -hmm. X-Clan in your background. That as you begin to receive all of those degrees and all of those certifications, that some kind of way you found a way to sound, feel, to stay grounded. One of my favorite terms is he got education and community before he got money. My joke is if they get money first, you don't know where they're going to go. You know, they're going to end up out there with Michael Jordan somewhere. But if they get community first, if they get connection first, and this brother definitely got community, connection and his spirituality connected to where he, even though he operates in a large environment, he stays focused with a strong community lens. Thank you, Dr. Tracy Dunn, for being here tonight to help us kind of begin to see what the future looks like of not only HBCUs, but women's leadership and entrepreneurship as people are being trained as Dr. Delgine said, is that, hey, you know, when you have a family legacy of entrepreneurship, you can learn through osmosis. You can watch Ma and Pa do it. But when you don't, you got to go to places and learn it. And it slows you down, but you get there. We are grateful that our HBCUs are providing an opportunity for us to get that learning. And you guys are doing like Mike Gretzky. You are taking our students not where things are today, but where the ball is going, the puck is going. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.